Hi, Mary. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Dan. How are you? Yes, good, thanks. So a question for you. What were you doing a year ago today? It's such a good question. And it's just one of those things these days, isn't it, that you almost like a sort of 9-11 thing. You remember exactly where you were, don't you? So a year ago today, I believe, was the day that the LCP offices shut and we started working from home almost consistently till today. It was actually also the day after my 30th birthday. So a year ago today, I was still just about getting over my 30th birthday party, which was kind of the last social event that me and a lot of my friends had attended before lockdown kicked in. Wow, nice. So happy 31st for yesterday. Thank you very much. Great to have been able to get the party in there, I guess. Hopefully it was one to remember and kept you all going. Yeah, we snuck it in. It was definitely before restrictions came in and only a few people that didn't make it because of being concerned about seeing people and things like that. So yeah, got away with it just about. How about you, Dan? Because your birthday's next week, isn't it? Yeah, I, d- I didn't realise our birthdays were so close together. So I've got my 40th next week, of course, and my dream of maybe having a pint in a pub on my 40th, unfortunately, has gone. But I don't know, I reckon that that just means I can stay 39 for another year and just have <laughs> my 40th year after. But, but yeah, I remember a year ago, I was up at the Pension and Lifetime Saving investment conference in Edinburgh uh, sort of at the start of March last year. And that was the thing that sticks in my mind as the last big thing I did before everything went into lockdown. Things were definitely, I remember the markets were sort of falling 10% a day kind of thing when we were up there at that conference. So that was certainly very memorable. And then I got back and was isolating after that. And then like you say, the LCP offices closed. And then I think it was the day after my birthday, actually last year that Boris Johnson did the big announcement. It was on the 23rd where he sort of said, everyone must stay home, that, that sort of thing. So yeah, and well, here we are. Here we are. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So joining us today for a conversation, trying to make sense of the last year and looking ahead a little bit to the future, we're delighted to welcome Clay Lambiotti, head of our investment business. Clay, great to have you on the show. Thanks, Dan. Great to be here today. Welcome, Clay. Before we get started, could you just give the listeners a bit of detail about kind of who you are and what you do at LCP? Sure. So I guess I have two roles within LCP. So first and foremost... I advise institutional investors on their investment strategy. So that includes organizations like pension funds, endowments, and sovereign wealth funds. And then I also have some management and strategic responsibilities within LCP, where I am head of the investment department and also a member of our executive committee, which is responsible for the day-to-day running of the overall business. So in case it's not already obvious to listeners, Clay is mine and Mary's boss, so we've got some... (laughs) Some prize tough questions tacked in there at the end, or maybe our one chance to throw some of those in. But Clay, kick us off. Why don't you tell us something we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your LinkedIn profile? Well, probably no surprise to many of my colleagues, and in fact, anyone, I guess, who's been on a Zoom call with me over the last year. But one of my hobbies is aviation. So I gained my pilot's license about 10 years ago, learning to fly in the often tricky weather conditions in the UK. But of course, I guess today I'm somewhat out of practice as it's not been the ideal lockdown hobby. And the reason everyone who's been on a Zoom call knows that is because you've got a huge picture of a plane behind you, which makes it pretty obvious. (laughs) It is a pretty obvious theme in my room. Absolutely. Any idea of when you're going to be able to get back into that again? 
So I think from mid-April, things start opening up again. So dust off the skills and see how we go. Fantastic. So some people are heading to the hairdresser and you're heading to the sky. Nice. Exactly. Yeah, as you know, Mary, I won't be making many trips to the hairdresser. It's not difficult. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> right. Cool. Okay, well, I mean, looking back, obviously, over the last year, where to start, really, I suppose? I mean, where on earth would you start in terms of trying to sort of summarize some of our experience of the last year and how you've seen it in terms of the way we've worked and invest and advise has sort of changed and evolved a bit? So much has been said on this topic already. When I think about it from that perspective, ultimately, I just think it's so difficult to generalize. I mean, there have been different challenges for different people in different ways. Everyone has had to adapt in some way, shape, or form. And that's been no different for us as a business. So yes, there have been a ton of challenges. I've been impressed with how so many people have met that challenge and dealt with that. And perhaps what's more interesting is as we start to come out of lockdown is what are the changes that will persist? What are the advancements that have kind of been accelerated in this pandemic? And how will we respond and change what we do from here? Absolutely. And I suppose we had a survey around, I think it was yesterday, wasn't it, on how people want to return to the office if they want to return to the office. And I think that's a really important issue. And of course, there are lots of factors that will feed into that. So there are some people who have suffered as a result of being locked down and really desperate to get back in the office. There are some people who actually it's much more convenient not to be in the office. How we work in the future will clearly depend a bit on those personal factors and how many people we have that are in each of those sort of different camps. And I suppose from a sort of investment and ideas perspective, collaboration is so key that we need to find a way that we're still able to collaborate even in a new world. That to me is almost one of the areas that the pandemic has just accelerated that trend, which is around people wanting flexibility. The whole challenge before the pandemic was work-life balance. How do you manage it? You've got to commute on both ends of your day and you've got a, a job to commit to. And it seemed like what people were mostly after was more and more flexibility. And so in terms of thinking about the business and our benefit structure, how do we give people more flexibility? And if you'd have said allowing people to just work from home all the time, we would have thought that's probably an ineffective way to run the business. Well, now we've done it. We've proven it. So how will it work going forward, I think, is a really difficult question. I think it's going to be a little bit of trial and error. But I do think one of the lasting implications of this is that the office may become much more of a networking and collaboration hub as opposed to just a place to go and sit and do your work. Yeah, it's interesting. I've sort of read two opposing schools of thought on this. There's, there's the one school of thought that says, now the genie's out of the bottle, it's never going back and lots of knowledge work like ours is going to be done from home forevermore sort of thing. Other people saying, no, don't be so silly. We're social people. We love talking to each other. We love face-to-face. It really matters. The office will still be important. People will flock back pretty quickly. Are you erring one side or the other of that argument, or are you sort of waiting to see how the views come in from the people? Maybe I'm kind of in the middle, which is a weak answer, perhaps, to that question. But I think people do want to be in the office. They want the social interaction. I think that is so important and vital to people in their day-to-day lives. But I think the reason that you go into the office and what you're doing when you're there may be different, because there are a lot of parts of your job that you can do from home. You just need your laptop, you need to be logged in, you need to be working on the things that you're doing. The office may then become that sort of social interaction, the networking, the brainstorming, the idea creation, that sort of thing. I think people do want the office, will flock to the office, but it'll be in a more balanced way and perhaps for a slightly different purpose than what it used to be. 
It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I've heard very similar, I guess, thinking about other industries that have moved online sooner and more structurally. So things like retail and conversations in years before the pandemic about how the high street needs to become an event almost. It's more than just going into a shop because you can go into a shop online. It almost feels like that's the future of offices. It's actually making them a fun, a dynamic place, probably less rigid desks just because their purpose will change. And you're almost trying to attract people in for the purpose, like you said, play of collaboration and discussion and that sort of thing. Almost, dare I say it, a bit like a reminiscent of a WeWork or something. I mean, they've sort of pioneered (laughs) that spirit, haven't they, in some ways of that? Yeah, absolutely. One interesting point, actually, I picked up, actually was reading an article in The Economist at the weekends. I hadn't thought about this angle before, but it was in relation to tricky negotiations over emerging market sovereign debt. And there's obviously been a few emerging market defaults over the last year, but they were just making the point that these negotiations are fundamentally people things. And right now, those tough negotiations with creditors are being done over Zoom, which is very different to being done in a room where you have these sort of old alliances you can tap into, you can sidle up to an old ally and say, look, how should we play this? You can read the body language, you can see where the weakness is, sense when you've got the strong hand and stuff. And I kind of thought, yeah, that is interesting. Those really tough negotiations, maybe they do come down to a personal thing. Now, in my job work, I don't come across that many of those, to be totally honest. I just wonder, Clay, whether you've got any perspective on that, whether you've seen that play out at all or any instances that reminds you of? There is an example from LCP, perhaps not on the level of stakes at play with emerging market debt and that sort of thing. But one of the interesting sort of ways of working in lockdown that I thought was quite extraordinary was we had a change in our ownership structure at LCP during the pandemic. So we had a private equity firm called Inflection that had a minority stake in our business. They had been invested for about four years. And as private equity firms do, they wanted to realize the value of that investment and move on to other things. So we went through a process of them sort of exiting their position. The partners bought back an additional share in LCP. And the remaining minority stake that they had went to a firm called Charterhouse. So we effectively completed a transaction. And what was most extraordinary about that was it was done in a four-week period, start to finish. Opening the discussions with Charterhouse and agreeing that the terms of that transaction were done in a four-week period. And if you think about it, if we were doing this in a face-to-face world, that would have never been possible. You suddenly start to see the inefficiencies of trying to get everyone together in a room. I mean, you lose days, you lose weeks. Whereas if you're just saying, look, let's get on a call, I mean, you can get that arranged very quickly. So there is an efficiency element to all of this that I think has been brought into play that just wouldn't have been possible in a face-to-face world. That's interesting. Did the work streams pan out differently to how they would have done? In other words, did you sort of break things down and take them away rather than relying on that slightly old-fashioned, get everyone around a table for everything sort of thing? Or was it just that you could arrange it more quickly? Was that the big breakthrough? I think you can arrange it more quickly. And then I, I guess also... The way in which we work is just so much more integrated and interactive. You guys have seen it in your day-to-day work where you've got the same document in front of you and six people can be editing that at once. It's not sort of the linear kind of series approach. So many things are happening in parallel in this world, which I think just really accelerate timescales for getting things done. So gone are the days where we say, well, we'll just lock them in a room and they're not allowed out until they've come to an agreement. (laughs) I once heard a story from someone at a very large company who was involved in buying smaller firms. And he had basically admitted that an explicit tactic was to hold long meetings in their office with the potential firm they were buying, not serve any coffee or biscuits or water, 
and the people on their side would alternate going into a separate room to sleep for hours. And so <laughs> the people they were negotiating against had literally no sleep, nothing to eat or drink. And that is a dirty way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, pretty barbaric. But I mean, that's gone now. They've got no hope, have they? In a Zoom world, they need to find new tricks. But I suppose bringing it back to sort of how we interact with people and with our clients, I suppose, one of the things that I've found is quite difficult, and I know we've spoken about it before on the podcast, is reading the room. So you're giving a piece of advice. You want to make sure everyone's keeping up with what you're saying. You may not notice if someone's actually got distracted or because that's obviously a big risk at the moment. But I suppose also in terms of things like new business meetings where you don't know the room, it's even harder to read it. And I know that's something that we've, I think probably anyone doing any new business has sort of struggled with in the last year. Exactly. I mean, it's a huge challenge. As we said at the start, we're social people. We're used to those physical elements of seeing and reacting and eye contact and things like that. And that just doesn't happen as naturally in this virtual space. And I found it just a psychological battle. You can be on a call or discussing a topic and you just suddenly get this feeling that you just by yourself in a room talking to yourself. You don't have the feedback. You don't have the interactions. It is a real challenge. I would imagine lots of people are really excited about the prospects of just getting back to some face-to-face interactions and discussions. I've certainly struggled with the reading the room thing. I don't think I'm that great at it anyway at the best of times. And the trouble is my reaction to it makes it worse because I sort of double down on trying to push forward and get through to the end of a presentation or something in the allotted time, which compounds the error of not reading the room if I'm not careful because it pushes forward when people are not coming with you and you actually need to do to talk to do the opposite. But it is interesting because a lot of the efficiencies of the online world are great. And, and, it's, and there's been some very focused meetings I've been part of that have been brilliant where you can get through something probably would have taken two hours before you get through it in 40 minutes. But there's some stuff that you can't push so hard on like that where you do need let the discussion sort of swirl around a little bit and let people have their say. And, and that I haven't seen that done well many times, actually. I've got to be honest, it's, that's been the hard thing to crack. I think gone are the days of long meetings. It'll be really interesting to see how things go back when we are able to meet face-to-face, because I know certainly a lot of my clients are probably not expecting to go back to four day-long meetings a year sort of thing. But then, as we've just acknowledged, some meetings you kind of want to do face-to-face. But if you're all trekking into London or wherever the offices are, you kind of want to make the most of that journey, don't you? And I think, again, we, we talk about what are the lasting implications of this pandemic and what we've seen. And I agree with you, Mary. I think the days of six-hour meetings are probably gone. And it's a little bit of a balance because I think we had to change the way we communicated with our clients when we went into lockdown. The way you communicate the types of papers you were putting together, shorter, sharper, more direct, clear recommendations, because people need to absorb that information in advance because the just general discussion was much harder. It was more about decision-making those meetings. So it shortened the timescales, again, more efficient, more effective use of time. But I guess it is a little bit of a balance because sometimes those sort of general discussions that maybe can feel inefficient or a bit of a waste of time, often some of that can tease out a, a better understanding or a new idea, that sort of thing. So it is a bit of a balance, but I do think some of the more efficient, effective, shorter, sharper, more direct meetings decision-making, moving things forward. I think that will be a feature that stays with us even as we open up. I actually read a really interesting article, which we can link to. So Yuval Noah Harari, who did books like Sapiens, that sort of thing, he's done a Lessons of the Year of COVID, which I saw through the FT. And he was talking about efficiency, effectively 
proper efficiency just drives like monopoly almost. So if you think about that in an advisor client relationship, if all you do is very efficient meetings where you say, here's a decision make it, here's another decision make it, actually you're almost dictating. It's almost a dictatorship, not a right relationship. So yeah, we'll link to that article because there's lots of interesting stuff in there. Yeah, that's a good point. I've certainly seen that a little bit. Okay. Well, should we pivot a little bit and sort of look forward? I mean, Clay, obviously your role advising some of the biggest investors around, very plugged into a lot of managers as well as running a decent sized UK business. Any thoughts and sort of theories about the future, the next year, decade sort of thing? Well, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question in a way. I mean, geez, I sort of look at this and think we could really be on the cusp of what may well be the most exciting decade, I don't know, in over a century. The initial conditions that we have in place today, if you just think about government position, the accumulation of debt, the huge stimulus packages, the initial conditions are unprecedented. And then you think about the scope for transformation across different industries is just, I mean, astounding. So the scale of investment, the scale of change that we face, the sort of global commitment to stimulus and accommodative conditions. I mean, it's you throw all that in the mix. And I think we are in for potentially a really exciting, interesting decade, two decades. Wow. So you're really nailing your colors to the mast there on the roaring 20s type narrative. It's great. I often see people with slightly more bearish, cautious stance. You seem to be pretty optimistic. There is that sense that, I mean, equity markets have just rebounded so sharply from where we were last March, which I think surprised everyone looking at the unemployment figures and the slowdown in economic activity and that sort of thing. You wouldn't have expected that this is where we would arrive. But you just look at the sort of longer term commitments from the governments to keep rates low. I mean, rates close to zero, negative in some places. You look at the stimulus packages that are still coming. I mean, Biden is just handing out checks in the US direct payments to people, which is upping the ante on all of that. And the stimulus packages that are going to come behind it, so the sort of build back better, build back greener. I just think the economic activity, there's a lot that I think will be happening over the coming decade. So yeah, it could be the second iteration of the Roaring Twenties, and wouldn't that be fun? So we'll see what happens. It doesn't feel like that's the consensus estimate at the moment, but it's a really interesting thing to unpick, isn't it? And just on the stimulus, I mean, to paraphrase our conversation with our colleague, Paul Gibney, it's a case of trillion here, trillion there, pretty soon you're talking real money sort of thing. (laughs) A couple of days ago, wasn't it, that the 1.9 trillion, I think, got officially passed, although that's sort of old news because it's been baked into markets, I guess, since the start of the year. But I've seen more and more articles just going through looking at the US and just saying, right, on an individual family basis, this is the boost in income that that gives you. And the, the numbers are absolutely staggering, actually, sort of tens of thousands of dollars per family in the US. And plenty of people saying that there's really just no parallel in terms of giving out that amount of money. So while that's not new news, is it? I think there's an argument to be said there that it, people still haven't internalized what that could do once it gets a sort of unleashed. I suppose that's the key point, isn't it? Because I've heard a lot of people say, we've had this huge rebound. There's a lot of optimism priced already into markets. So the big question there is, I suppose, how much is already priced in? How much isn't yet appreciated and will therefore come through in the next decade? Obviously, really tough to judge. I mean, one of the good quotes around it, so you're sort of getting into what's priced in is, do we already have a bubble that's emerging? What could happen from here? And it is really, really difficult. Bubbles are hard to spot. I think they're even harder to time. I saw a good quote the other day about bubbles that says a mania first carries out those who bet against it and then those who bet with it. So, I mean, for example, you look at Bitcoin, 
you're probably thinking, wow, I hate being on the sidelines of this. Look at what it's done. But equally, jumping on at this stage, you could be regretting that too. So these things are really, really hard. But the individual impact, I think we're all still learning what that's going to look like. I mean, savings rates are up. Robinhood counts are up. Credit card balances are down. There's huge pent-up demand. The impact that retail investors, they seem emboldened now to take on markets, to do things differently. The impact of all of that social mentality, just that could be really interesting how that plays out. So what you're saying that new account openings at Robinhood is the new market indicator of our time, perhaps. And <laughs> It is a measure I think that we need to pay attention to for sure. Who knew we'd be sitting around at meetings with our clients talking about things like GameStop and, and why on earth that was doing what it's doing, but a taste of the future, perhaps. No, just going back quickly on the bubble points, I think it's really interesting that there's been a lot of debate, obviously, are we in a bubble, et cetera. And good piece, I thought, by Ray Dalio a week or so ago, which we can link to his overall, he's got these six bubble indicators and overall he says the market as a whole is not in bubble territory, but he picks out a couple of sub areas that he thinks are frosty. And I think that's the key thing, isn't it? It's like you can always point to something. And in these sort of times when markets are high, you can always point to something that looks a bit frothy and there's a bit of excess. There's always excess here and there. But I think the key is not let that to scare you away from the overall narrative that you're saying, Clay, that there is a very positive backdrop out there. So stuff is going up for a good reason. Yeah, there are always going to be pockets of excess, but I think this whole question of are we in a bubble or not is often a little bit unhelpful because people point to it. It becomes stories, doesn't it? It's a question of stories. And then you're just in the realm of narratives and stuff. And that's why I think any sort of generalization is impossible here because, again, as I said, I think the scope for just complete transformation and innovation, parts of the market may well be in bubble territory. Other parts may not. I mean, you looked at the sort of the electric vehicles were just fit up to incredible levels. Perhaps was the market overlooking the sort of the supply constraints on the inputs to all of those sorts of things where we're seeing some tightness. But there's going to be huge amounts of innovation around the renewals, around Dan, you'll have you produced that interesting paper on the change in the energy sector and just the amount of commitment from the UK to basically replace the fossil fuel industry with renewables over 30 years. I mean, just think about the scale of that change. It's staggering. It is actually, yeah. I mean, we'll link to it in the show notes. I was really interested to work with our energy team on writing that paper. But the basic takeaway is just this enormous flow of capital that's more or less committed now by the government to happen over the next 30 years to effectively rip out an old infrastructure that goes into almost everyone's house in the country and, and replace it. And the scale of it is vast. And I've only really woken up to that in the last couple of months since I've looked into it in detail, lots of potential opportunities for investors in there. So the numbers there, it's sort of 350 billion over the next 30 years in the UK. And then obviously this is a global theme as well. And JP Morgan put out a piece the other day saying that every year the, the global investment in this sort of renewable power and stuff runs into the hundreds of billions of dollars globally every single year. So it's a global theme as well. Obviously, a lot of the talk in the US now is around the infrastructure build out. So there's been lots of, I've made this point before, been lots of US presidents that have come in and said, let's do infrastructure and it doesn't always get done. But this is a really enormous theme. And again, I wonder if it's one of those things that's been mentioned so many times, people sort of nod away and assume that, yeah, I get it. But has it really been internalized, the jobs that could bring the new assets, just that flow of capital and what it's going to do? It's hard to be precise, isn't it, Clay? I mean, it's, it's a feeling, it's a sort of a story, but you start to put these things together and you can paint a picture. That's right. And that's where I just think the size and scale of what we're talking about is sort of unprecedented. It's difficult to anticipate the impact. And again, whether it's thinking about government 
activity and commitments, whether you're thinking about what's going on with individuals and retails, or you're just thinking about industry and the just complete transformation that we're likely to see across different industries. The energy sector is but one. There's a lot that I think that's going to sort of flow through the system over the coming decade. And you can certainly see a lot of economic activity coming out off the back of it. Absolutely. So thinking about, I guess, the sorts of investors that we work with and what this means for decision making at the moment, and I guess any sort of specific ideas or themes that you're seeing in terms of direction of travel for those investors? It's obviously quite difficult. I mean, I think for me, our investors are also different. So the critical thing for anybody, of course, is target and time scale. We've got perhaps some pension funds that actually may have a shorter investment horizon as maybe they're looking to ultimately ensure the benefits with an insurer over a period of five years. These long-term trends that we're talking about, at $350 billion invested in the UK over 30 years to change the energy sector, it's difficult to participate that if you have a five-year investment horizon. But if you look at sovereign wealth funds or if you look at retail investors in the defined contribution space, much longer time horizon, and that can influence where you may invest. But I think for those longer-term investors, I think equity markets are still a good investment. I know they've had a good run. I know there's talk or questions over are they in bubble territory. But again, I think it's really exciting to think about the amount of change and innovation that you can participate in as an equity investor over the next 10, 20 years. That's an interesting point, actually. You don't often hear that point made because in some ways, I don't know, there's something smart about always sounding a bit bearish and a bit negative, isn't it? You tend to hear less people who say that, but I guess a takeaway of that would be don't be afraid of investing at equities at kind of all-time highs, which is sort of where we are. I think we're roughly around all-time highs in the S&P, similar in in global indices. But if you follow your line of thought, you're saying don't be afraid of that. If you're a long-term investor, multi-generational timeframe, you shouldn't fear buying at highs. And I I think the stats actually favor that approach. I don't think there's any – people tend to fear highs for some reason quite often, but I don't think the data tells you that buying at highs is a particularly bad idea. In fact, it can be quite good. The other, I mean, important factor for me is it's easy to get on board with a narrative and start feeling more and more certain about that narrative. But look, I don't sort of underestimate the amount of uncertainty out there or how much I really don't know and can't predict. So obviously, you want to be careful. You might balance that out with some other things. I mean, we've talked about all the infrastructure investment. There's, it's going to require a huge amount of capital in the infrastructure space. So that's another area, sort of a global infrastructure type investment to participate in that side of things as well. And I suppose just on the equity point, just just quickly, I mean, stating the obvious perhaps, but I guess our core idea is go global when it comes to equities. And I suppose that's consistent with what you're saying, because it's sort of saying you just want to participate all over the place. You don't want to sort of have to get tied down to predicting what's going to be a winner and what's not. Certain markets may or may not win, but being global is generally good. And secondly, I guess, really give emerging markets a good look as well. You've got a lot of the two of the three biggest semiconductor manufacturers are listed in emerging markets, aren't they? So if you really believe that innovation thing, you definitely want to be investing there as well, I would say. So two potentially obvious points, but probably worth repeating in terms of that equity piece, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I would agree. I mean, you often do focus on what's going on in the US because of the size of the market and the scale. And Dan, you mentioned that the conversation with Paul gave me about a trillion here, a trillion there. Those sort of spending commitments and stimulus commitments will just reverberate around through various markets around the world. So absolutely, I agree. A broad strategy that's diversified just allows you to participate in those pockets of growth. So what about credit? I guess just taking one of the other sort of very big headline asset classes. So we've got spreads at historic lows at the moment. So are we 
generally rotating clients completely away from corporate credit or actually is there a place still in some strategies? I'm still seeing it used in some of my more mature pension scheme strategies. I think that's right. I think it's a risk question. So I think for certain investors that need reliable yield, they need that sort of visible income coming into their strategy. I think credit can play a role. But I think if given where spreads are and this sort of at very low levels, that actually if there is a tactical element to the credit space, I would say it's to be at the shorter end of the spectrum, shorter duration credit rather than longer duration credit. But really for me in the credit space, what I think is interesting is an area that I guess has turned themselves as opportunistic credit. I think in the fixed income markets, there have been some, well, across investment markets generally, people have rebranded themselves in attractive ways. It was perhaps more called distressed debt. It's now more opportunistic credit. But again, if you think about just the transformation that's going to happen across different industries, there is going to need to be a lot of restructuring in businesses along the way. And that sort of approach of providing the capital to facilitate that sort of restructuring, I think could be a really interesting area for investors to be over the coming years. Absolutely. And we spoke to Steve Hodder about that last year, so we can link to that episode with a bit more detail on that area. But it is a super interesting area, isn't it? I've looked at that for a few of my clients recently, but the issue is there's a lot of frustrated opportunistic managers out there who kind of would have hoped that this period of stress would have resulted in more opportunities for them. But I guess perhaps they'll come through more slowly over a period of time once things sort of shake out after the initial kind of support. It's interesting the point on credit, just going back for a second. I mean, yeah, you're saying that investment grade type corporate bonds are quite narrow spreads, but I always remember a conversation I had with an ex-colleague, must have been around about 2007 when corporate bond spreads got very tight and people were sort of saying, are they a little bit too narrow? And he said something like, yeah, sure, RBS debt might only offer you 20 basis points extra spread, but they're just not going to default, are they? So it doesn't matter. And that was probably in the start of 2007. A year later, that wasn't looking like such a smart comment yeah. after all. But there is something to it, which is that if these investment grade companies just don't default, then you earn that spread, I guess. And that's where I think the shorter dated credit, just given the uncertainty around the scale of change and where that's going to happen, I'd rather have a shorter maturity credit where I'm wearing that default risk over a shorter period of time, rather than sort of having an eight or a 10 year corporate bond that has you locked in for a longer period. Just quickly then on the, maybe rounding out the investment thing on the real assets, because it's something we touched on, obviously, in terms of the infrastructure spend. We've done a couple of episodes on this before. Obviously, Andy Jacobson has come on and talked about global real estate. So it's a really, it's a continuation of that sort of go global type theme, I suppose. And we're quite keen on global property, global infrastructure, and those sort of things for some of the reasons that's already been said. I think that's right. I mean, different parts of the world are going to be impacted in different ways. And again, going back to the point, I just think diversification is important. You just look at the way different countries are going to come out of this pandemic. They will be impacted in different ways. The vaccination rates, who knows about different mutations, things like that. The initial conditions where they're starting from are all very different. But I do like generally having an element of real assets and being in that space. And I would definitely suggest doing that on a global basis rather than anything narrower than that. And I suppose just thinking about the clients of ours that are able to really grasp this next decade of potential huge growth. And we've already acknowledged that there are clearly risks in this period as well. And if a lot of restructuring is required, then market dynamics could be quite sort of up and down over time. And I guess one of the key things for our clients then is being able to be agile and nimble to take advantage of those opportunities as they rotate effectively over the next decade. I think that's absolutely right. And sometimes liquidity can be overlooked. But I think in a portfolio context, just allowing you that freedom and that flexibility 
to change and adapt because we are going to be through a period of change. I've presented a fairly sort of optimistic case over the next decade, but look, there will be bumps along the way. There will be shocks and investors will need to be able to adapt and respond. So I think that is absolutely important. Great. So Clay, as we start to wind up this episode, what's the one thing that you want listeners to take away from today? I guess I've kind of said it from the start. I mean, we may well be on the cusp of one of the most exciting periods for investors. The current conditions and the potential for transformation, I think, are just unprecedented. So maybe, could it be the next iteration of the Roaring Twenties? We've been locked down for a year. There's huge pent-up demand. Governments are addicted to stimulus and debt. And I think the pace of change is just going to be breathtaking. So I guess, in short, it would be buckle up and hopefully enjoy the ride. I love a bold prediction and someone who gets off the fence. That's great, isn't it? But I'm just making a note to come back in 10 years and hold into that and, and, and sort of see where we are. But anyway, Clay, different tack, but what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing right now? I'm afraid I may end up giving you the worst answer to this question as it may well be the most obvious, but I would just say diversification. We've covered a few times through the discussion today, but it's not for the technical risk modeling reasons that we often talk about. I think about diversification more from a human behavioral perspective. So if I learned anything from the flight training, it's about challenging what you're doing. What if I'm wrong? What if something fails? What are my backup plans? What is going to save me? How do I test what my instruments or my instincts are telling me? And I think it's no different in investing. It's important to know your limitations. We can all get caught up in a particular narrative and become convinced that we're right. But I think it's far better to build a portfolio that doesn't rely on you being absolutely right. I love that. Investing lessons from flying. Have you written that up as a blog or something? Because that is just <laughs> dying to Not yet, be a piece. There's a nugget in there somewhere. We'll tease it out. There is in there. It. And my next question, Clay, was going to be whether you had any recommendations. So you can't recommend your own book on the combination of flying and investing. But do you have any recommendations for listeners? I won't say learn to fly. But I will say one good book that I've picked up over the last year that's worth reading is it's called The Psychology of Money. I thought just some really good tips and ideas and concepts in that book. Certainly worth a read. Fantastic. Thank you. I read that one too. We'll put it in the show notes. Really good, isn't it? Got lots of good stories. Definitely. Clay, it's been an absolutely great discussion today. Thank you so much for your time. Wonderful. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Clay. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.